Hey there, you're listening to High Performance, our gift to you for free every single week. This is the chart-topping podcast that turns the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So today, along with tens of millions of others, allow the greatest leaders, thinkers, sports stars, entertainers and entrepreneurs to be your teacher. You know, I was reading a book this week um, by a guy called Greg Hoffman, who was the former chief marketing officer of Nike, and he will be on the podcast very soon. We're recording with him in a couple of weeks. I'm very excited. I don't think the book's available yet. It's yet to be released. Um, But there was a great quote in there. See what others see, but find what others don't. And just stood out to me. I thought you'd like it. See what others see find what others don't and the reason why I like that line is because I think it's all to do with empathy it's all to do with a better understanding of our fellow human beings and once you understand them better you can go deeper I'm talking about a deeper understanding of them of course but also deeper relationships deeper compassion the ability to be an ally in a much deeper way and that's really what I want today's episode to offer you an opportunity to get a deeper understanding of a man currently doing one of the most impressive jobs in the Premier League this season in the next hour we're joined by a Premier League manager but we don't talk about formations we go deeper than that we go deeper than league position we go deeper than football results for the next hour we talk all about life And we do it with one of the most experienced managers working in English football today. This is the High Performance Podcast with the West Ham manager, David Moyes. I see leadership come in lots of different forms. I don't think leadership is one way you do leadership. I think everybody does their own type of leadership. And mine was to sort of probably dig the players out right away. Every game in this business is a hard one to win, you know, and you can hardly smile because you've got another difficult game round the corner. But I just changed my mind and said, I'm going to be positive, I'm going to pass it on to the players and we're going to try and be attractive as much as we can. We're going to try and get to a stage where we're we're a much more attractive looking team. And there's a lot of opinions out there, you know, the the industry, the world, these, these situations means there's a lot of opinions. I think you have to try and do it with a bit of humility. You're trying to tell people how things are. You know, but I'm not trying to tell them this is the way. But somewhere along the line, you have to be the person who makes the decision. David had so much to tell us, and it was so interesting to have this kind of conversation. So what I want you to do today is just suspend your opinion, because you may well have an opinion when you click on this podcast about how David transformed Everton. I know many former and current Manchester United players listen to this podcast. They too would have to put aside their opinion of his time at Old Trafford. You Man United fans tuning in will have to do the same. The same for Sunderland or Real Sociedad fans. And even, despite the fact he's doing an absolutely stunning job at West Ham, even the Hammers fans that have a preconception of who and what David Moyes is have to put that to one side. So at the time of this record, West Ham are chasing European football. They're in the Europa League quarterfinals in the coming days. We wish David and the team the very best of luck with that. He has reignited the relationship between his players and the fans at West Ham. So how's he done it? What are his challenges? How did his upbringing inform his work? It's very rare to hear top flight managers talking in this way. Yet if you like it, there's more from High Performance. You can find episodes with Maurizio Pochettino, Frank Lampard, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, Steven Gerrard, Steve Clark, and so many more. So welcome along. It's my pleasure 
to welcome you to the High Performance Podcast. As always, I'm joined by Professor Damien Hughes, an expert in high-performing team cultures who has worked for so many years with all kinds of teams in all different spheres. So I really hope you enjoy the unfiltered truth today from High Performance. I think you're going to love it. David Moyes on High Performance comes next. We always start with the same question on this podcast. What is high performance to you? Very simply teamwork for me. Uh, but teamwork comes in, comes a lot of different aspects, but simple answer, teamwork. So what does teamwork represent to you? Teamwork represents uh, accountability from everybody included. An inclusive inclusivity, if I get the word right there, yeah. would be something which I try to have with my staff, that they're very much part of it. I think that uh, everybody buying into what we do, a lot of trust is required because I want my staff to be part of part of that that journey what I would hopefully go on wherever I may be so so that's a couple of thoughts on it but uh, I think teamwork really generally would be where I would start which is a fascinating answer because looking at your background David I, I was really taken by the role of your dad when he yeah. was the amateur coach at Drum Chapel yeah and I was interested in how many of those values and I imagine teamwork was mm -hmm. one of them that you experienced growing up that you still take with you today at West Ham? Well, I had a, I had a really good uh, background, if you want to call for football management, because my dad did run one of the teams, which is a club called Drumchapel Amateurs in Glasgow. And uh, like Sir Alex played there and many, many great uh, sort of Scottish players played for them. John Wark and I can think Asa Hartford and people like that in the early days all played there. So as a, as a young boy, I used to go and uh, watch the team. I watched uh, my dad organise the games, the, the 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 pitches, the the referees, you know, take the team. And then he would come back with the strips and my mum had to wash the strips, you know, and they would be hung out in the back garden. And 
it'd be my job to fold them up. So from an early age, there was a sort of, there was a wee bit of organisation and probably a wee bit of leadership getting looked at uh, right from the start watching how my dad done it. But uh, uh, they were great days and I used to go and watch them and uh, follow the team everywhere they went, really. And if your dad was watching you now, well, yeah. what, what common characteristics would he see that he'd be able to trace back to uh, those days? I think the values which were set in, you know, like things like discipline and turning up. I mean, in, in, in those days from Chapel Amateurs, the players had to turn up with shirts and ties on. No, and they wouldn't have played them if they didn't turn up with shirts and ties on, you know. And now and now, look at the state of us, you know, I'm coming to do this and no collar and tie on. But in those days, you know, it was, there was a lot of discipline. I think discipline is still a big, big part of any, any industry, but certainly a football club, it's really, really important. I'm really interested to know how you get those values into a, a modern football club. You know, you've been a manager mm -hmm. for a long time. Mm -hmm. The game feels like it's changed. Players feel like they've changed. But you are as successful, if not more successful now than you've ever been. So what is the secret to making a modern football club gel, which is what you've achieved at West Ham? Well, I think we need everybody on, on the same page. But uh, commitment, I think, is one. I think you need to be, everybody needs to be committed and, and going, to, going to help you. And you don't need it broken. And let's be fair, you know, if you're talking about West Ham in general, for many years it's looked that way. I've found it really good to work with. I've found that everybody's pulled together, all going in the same direction. But sometimes you need good bits of fortune, you need bits of luck. I always remember even when I first got my job at Everton, I remember Walter Smith saying to me, he says, you're going to be really lucky. And I'd taken over from Walter. He says, there's a young boy in the academy. He says, he's going to be a great player. And you think, oh, never see him in my time and it happened to be Wayne Rooney and things like that actually can help you personally can help the club gives the club more profile we're a little bit like that at West Ham at the moment you know we've got Declan Rice who's an outstanding English international and he's helping the club and helping us all at the moment and I think trying to make West Ham I'm going to say more popular uh, but certainly I think West Ham will become a club with team that people actually quite like watching because they've seen a lot of good things in the last the last year or two. So when you say commitment, what does that look like? I think the commitment for me is that the players are going to be part of that as well. You know, I've, I mentioned the other staff, I think the staff, but I need the players to buy into how, how we work, what we try and do. And sometimes that's not easy. This was my second time at West Ham. I'd been there before and uh, actually felt we had done done enough to retain the job the first time. But uh, we didn't. So coming back, you know, I had to think deeply was I going to get the players on my side. But by all accounts, you know, the players were really keen on me coming back. And that gave me a start. And I think sometimes, as I said, you need you need a little bit of help and things to go well for you for it to work. I think we see lots of lots of clubs which are not committed behind their, their managers or their coaches. And I think they're the clubs which tend to find that, uh, you know, things don't go well. So we have... Lots of non-football people that listen to this. Yes. Lots of business leaders, lots of teachers. And they're all doing a very similar job to you, really. They're getting a group of people and trying to get them to believe in a common aim. So let's take this most recent iteration of West Ham for you. When you went back in, do you remember what the sort of first thing you did or said to the players was, which may well give people outside of the game an indication of what they can do with their teams to get people on side. I had told them that I'd watched the games and I thought that they, they hadn't performed well. I had the video of the games, I'd watched a few of the games and I showed them and I said, 
this is nothing like we're going to play and this is nothing like you will be acceptable. There was lots of incidents where, where players weren't running back, players were out of position. And that's that's no criticism of any other manager or any, any other coach. So that was the way I decided to go. But I think that uh, the leadership I, I took or the way I saw that being then was that this was the way I wanted it to be done. I had to do it really quickly. We'd short amount of games or we could have been relegated. What was going to happen? And also I was coming back from a situation where, you know, people were probably saying, oh, David Moyes coming back, not too sure about that. You know, how's he going to react? And, you know, he's been here before and maybe some people were seeing there's been some jobs that haven't worked for me. So I had that to deal with as well. But I decided if I was going to go, I had to go full on. And... I see leadership coming in uh, lots of different forms. I don't think leadership is one way you do leadership. I think everybody does their own type of leadership. And mine was to sort of probably dig the players out right, right away. There's things I could look at. You know, we were, for example, physically, West Ham were really poor in the physical stats. And I think when you're not doing well, you, you want to think that your supporters want to think that their players are committed, they're working hard, they're doing everything they can, they're committed. And then when you look and say, well, actually, you know, you're, you're bottom of the, the physical stats for distance run, you know, you don't make it many sprints, you know, all those things that go with it. So in many ways for a, for a coach or a manager, these can be quick wins, Yeah. but you still have to try and get the players to do it. And what did you also do to provide some sort of psychological safety to those players? Because I can see that going in and going, not good, not good, not good, do this better... They, they understand the levels you want to operate yeah. at. But then comes the moment where you need to bring them on side, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you go about letting them know that's not good enough, but then comes the arm around the shoulder, if you like? Well, the practice, the practice and the compliments and the encouragement. And I think I felt practices which would make them feel good. And strangely enough, players uh, running hard and getting cheered. And I make a, a sort of, I'll tell you this little bit, Two years ago, for the people who do understand football, was we had Marko Anoutovic at West Ham, who was not particularly liked by the supporters, didn't do well. I remember saying to Marco, I says, it's strange football, you know, if you run around and you you close down and you chase people, the supporters cheer you. And I used to always say, if I was a centre forward, all I would do was run hard and make the supporters think, because I'd get a cheer, they'd be, they'd be pleased with me. And really... All players want to be acknowledged and want to be, you know, think that they're doing a good job. Marco started running, chasing people down, started to win a few balls back and got got the plaudits for it. Also, he had the technical ability. So that is one of the examples where I think actually, you know, sometimes to make it simple and say, well, why don't you just run a bit harder? Why don't you try and show people that you do care, you are committed? And uh, I think that was probably the level we started. And it was probably... There's nothing clever about it, but it was a base level where I felt if we started there, then we could see where we could go. See, there's a phrase that you use there, David, that really fascinates as well, that you spoke about at practice as opposed to at training. So would you tell me about how you create that environment at the clubs you go into where, where people can practice and learn rather than just train to get fit? Well, as, as I've gone on probably in more experience, I've started to look to find out what's changing. And part of being my periods where I've been out of work, I've tried to retrain myself a little bit. So I worked for UEFA, for example, and I would go to the games and I'd we were studying, you know, where are the goals getting scored? How are they getting conceded? You know, so things are brought back. 
but also found that I see a change in in the training of the players now. You know, we train as a as a group. You know, you're a team, but I see much more individual work. I see much more group work. So I think since I've come back, I've tried to int introduce much more group work, individual work, specific on the person or the unit, more unit meetings, less long meetings, possibly trying to be much, much more positive than I'd been in the past because I felt as if I was going into a job now, I'm saying, I'm fed up being, not negative, but being yeah. down on myself because every game in this business is a hard one to win, you know, and you can hardly smile because you've got another difficult game round the corner. But I just changed my mind and said, I'm going to be positive, I'm going to pass it on to the players and we're going to try and be attractive as much as we can. We're going to try and get to a stage where we're, we're a much more attractive looking team. And what have you seen as a difference since you've deliberately tried to be more positive? What impact have you seen that's had? Uh, I think when you're someone who's never always been that way, it's very hard to admit it. Yeah. But I think when you when you do get and you see it, you go, wow, you know, I wish I'd been doing that a lot, lot earlier. But, I mean, there's a difference in being, uh, being completely positive and being completely unrealistic. But I certainly think communication's become really, really big at the football clubs now. Years gone by, nobody would have knocked the manager's door. You know, as a player, I was a player. You'd have tried to stay away from the manager's door, you know, oh, the manager's coming quick out the way. I actually see it as being the opposite. I think communication, and I think it's the manager who's the, or the head coach is probably the person who has to, has to now lead the communication because uh, the players are different, as we've mentioned. There's a different environment. And uh, I see communication being positive, much more, uh, needed than maybe it was when I first started management. You know, what you want is a an open and communicative environment where people are able to be vulnerable, right? And say, look, I don't know, or I've made a mistake. Mm -hmm. But that has to come from the leader. Mm -hmm. So have you learned that you need to be vulnerable at the top to allow people below you mm -hmm. to be the same? Because mm -hmm. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in years gone by, football was not an environment when people were happy to be vulnerable. It was seen as a weakness yeah. rather than a strength. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I see that uh, that my job was to change, just like the players have got to change in, in, in many ways as well. And I do think that, I think there's been a big change in the players and how they come over now towards the manager. I think they're, they're much more open. You know, we're, we're working together much more closely. Players are interested in, in improving and what they can do, whereas in, in days gone by, you know, as you, you mentioned, maybe just trying to, avoid contact with the manager, only really going to see him for a new contract or, you know, for something else. I think nowadays there's a much more interaction. Has it changed the way you communicate? I like, do you say to your players, I got that wrong, I messed up? All the time. I would hope personally I'd done that throughout my career because I always want to be the first one to say, hey, I didn't get it right here. But quite often, you know, if you know if a defender makes a mistake and he scores a goal, that doesn't mean the manager's got that wrong. You know, it means mm. that the defender's made a mistake. So you you wouldn't you wouldn't take responsibility for that, but you take the the wholesome responsibility because you know that uh, ultimately, you know, we're the ones who are going to be be judged. And the other thing is, you need the players. You you know, they're they're very much part of what you do. And if you don't have them on your side, you know, it, it makes your job a lot more difficult. So you're talking now with years of experience of, of good and of bad moments. When you look back on your on your management career, what would you say was the, 
the single biggest moment of learning for you where you think, wow, that, that taught me, that really taught me something? When I was given a job at Preston North End, I was really fortunate to work with a really good chairman who was very calm and uh, would phone me on a Sunday evening, you know, eight o'clock on a Sunday evening. How was the game, David? And what was it? No, he was he was at the game and spoke about the game. He wasn't a he wasn't a, a, a huge big knowledge of the game. And I found him and he always was very calm, you know, do things correctly, you know, move on, don't get too high, don't get too low. And I remember, you know, even even the things, small things at this time, when I was a really young up-and-coming coach, you know, he said to me, I'd, I'd go to him with, you know, I, I want to buy a new centre-forward, for example, and I'd, I'd say, look, there's one here, he's 29 years old, lots of goals, and, and it's a 19-year-old here who's, you know, on the way up. And he, and he sort of always said to me, in our situation, always take the young one. And it might sound a really simple thing to say, and you might say, well, does that matter? But I took... I took that philosophy with me to Everton regarding recruitment. And if you if you look back at the Everton team when I took over at Everton, you know, it was David Ginola, Paul Gascoigne, you know, Tommy Gravison, Duncan Ferguson. I could go on and on about lots of senior players who were top, top players. But I had sort of went to, to Everton and gave them the eye. and said to them when they asked me, I says, look, I'd like to bring in young, hungry players, uh, with a different perspective. And we ended up with the likes of Tim Cahill's and you know, Jolene Lescott's and all the players all through their days. And most of them all went on to become international players. So I, I, there was another way, but that journey was quite a long way. So the information and the advice I got at that time, I think helped me very much in how I, how I shaped a, a couple of clubs. So can I ask you about that period when you took over at Preston? Because... I always think it's a real transition of going from a player to being a player manager. And how did you go about creating boundaries with former teammates where mm-hmm. to establish your authority? The story was always that, you know, going from a player to the manager was terrible. That used to be the thing I used to say in, in the era we went by, it wasn't good. But I had been uh, a player. I had been player coach. I had been assistant manager and eventually became manager at, at Preston North End. And I think by the time I got to the manager, the players, I was still playing at the time. I think the players knew that my, I was hoping that someday I might be going to coaching or management. Yeah. And they, I don't think the players were that surprised. And the difference I felt is I felt that taking over in that situation, I sort of knew what the players wanted, what they needed. How could I get some small wins when you when you take over? And uh, I think that helped me an awful lot. I mean, I've got to say, when I when I first got the job, I, I didn't really want it because I thought, I'm still playing. You know, they wanted, I remember the, the press and support, they wanted Ian Rush, or they wanted Joe Royal as manager at the time. Right. And it's a bit like all these jobs you get it and half the time the people didn't want you. And it's even worse now in, in the world we're living in just now. So you have to sort of trust yourself in, in what, you've, what you've been doing. But I spent an awful lot of my, my years between 20 and 30, desperately trying to become a better football player. And by doing that, I found myself going on coaching courses, trying to relearn and saying, well, how will this make me better? What will I do? What in turn it probably done was build up my sort of network of people I know, people seeing me out, people seeing that I was really interested in the game. 
And I think because of that, it, it helped me in the end when it, it came down to getting a managerial job. So how was that curiosity and that willingness to keep evolving and improving yourself, how was that perceived both as a player and then as a coach when you when you had that sort of innate hunger? So I just have to say, I had a really good football career. I played 500 games at all yeah. different levels. I had, I, had, I had a great, great football career. I really enjoyed it. Uh, but on that journey, I was still trying to find ways like I... I'd become a, a full-time Scottish coach when I was 21. And then I went and decided I would try and do, I would do the coaching courses in England as well, even though you don't have to. So I went and done them again. It's a little, little bit like going to university in Glasgow, then going to do it in London, if you know what I mean, and doing the same courses. But I felt that for me maybe to be recognised in England, then maybe I had to show that I, I, could, I could do the badges in England. But the journeys I went, I went to watch team's training, I wrote to managers, I I went to World Cups and at the time I have to say a lot of the stuff I had, I, I was lucky I got funded by the PFA to, to go a couple of times when I didn't have the, the finances to do it. I wrote to clubs and uh, I went. I had some great stories from clubs who who I wrote to and managers of great names. Like uh, who? Uh, the best would be Sir Bobby Robson who uh, Sir Bobby was a manager of Barcelona at the time and I wrote a letter to him asking if I could come out and watch them train and uh, no reply and I, I don't I, I can't remember what age I'd be maybe maybe 30 maybe maybe a bit less and I didn't get anything back for maybe a month then he wrote me a personal letter back handwritten and it, it said uh, it says I'm really sorry David I'm uh, I'm really late in replying. It was at the bottom of the pile and et cetera, et cetera. He says, I'm about to lose my job. He says, and Louis van Gaal's about to become the next manager. So I think I'm going to, I'm going to lose my job here. So wow. I ended up not getting out to Barcelona. But I believe somewhere in my boxes, in my loft somewhere, I still have the letter from Sir Bobby, which I always see that as... Is it taught me a little bit about being a, a coach and a manager that he, that he had time to write to someone who he would have had no idea about. And also, I feel as if that was the way I always thought I should be then. You know, you have to give people your time. Of course, nowadays, the, the, the living we're in nowadays doesn't mean that you can reply to everybody and write a letter to them. But I think trying to be courteous and try to give as much back as you can. It's very interesting hearing about that real drive to become a coach from a, a relatively young age, you know, and you had a brilliant playing career. Many players would have gone, well, done well, mm -hmm. had a good career, that'll be enough. But there was this real clear sort of burning desire and Preston went well. I mean, what you created at Everton still gets talked about today, the journey you took that club on. And then obviously came that big move to Manchester United. How hard was it to go through that experience at, at Manchester United? Almost the first real sort of difficult spell as a, as a manager after all those years of yeah. desire. Because when that call comes in, you think, wow, this is, this is mm -hmm. the moment, don't yeah. you? I've got some great thoughts about Manchester United, really have. But, you know, at that time I had been offered, I had met probably three other of the top clubs, either in England or in Europe, who wanted me to become the manager. And my mind was that I, I wasn't leaving Everton. It was only Sir Alex which made the, made the difference because Sir Alex wanted me to become manager. And as as I've said and uh, said many times, you know, he was the one who personally said, you know, you're the new, you're the next manager of Manchester United. But that came very very late at the end of the end of the season, and you know, and I was disappointed that I couldn't 
sort of deal with it better uh, with Bill Kenwright at the time because he was I was really close to Bill Kenwright with, at that time. But Manchester United was was special, special mm. club. I think I wish I was probably where I maybe am now, maybe seven, eight years older, because I even think at that time I felt experienced and maybe at that time was experienced. And if you look at the history of Manchester United, they, they always tended to, they never really t always took what they saw as being the top manager. They thought took some which fitted their model. Yep. Sir Alex fitted their model from Aberdeen, had been very successful at Aberdeen, fitted their model, you know, going to give young players the chance, you know, develop their own players, didn't always buy the, the most expensive players on the planet. And that's what sort of I look forward to because I saw them as seeing me as a someone who they could see who would develop the club and play young players and, you know, put effort into coaching and all the things that would come from it. But... Uh, Unfortunately, it didn't quite go that way and I only had 10 months. But I, I see it still as a real positive for many reasons. Uh, I don't think many people got offered a Manchester United job. Picking up on what you said there, David, that if you were offered that job now, seven or eight years older, what would you have done now that you didn't do then? Strange enough, everybody said to me, you know, things which maybe have changed. I, if, if there was anything I wanted to do, I didn't want to change anything about what I'd done with Sir Alex. But this is interesting because... I have a couple of people I speak to. I had uh, one guy who's a top, top manager said to me, you have to take your own team. I had somebody else said to me, no, you have to keep what's there. So it's really quite subjective when you get to these decision-making and, and you know, who would to say who's right or who's wrong about your own personal team and the, the people you bring in. But my idea was to fall on everything Sir Alex done. Obviously, I... I wouldn't be the same. Of course, he was he was a legend in how he worked and what he done. But I hoped that I wasn't going to change too much. Maybe in hindsight, maybe maybe I had to change maybe quickly. But I think everybody could see it's probably going to it's it has taken and it's probably going to take a bit of time to to get it back to those levels again. Do you feel that the criticism that the cultural memory of some of those people that Sir Alex had there with him that moved on when he moved on? Do you feel that that was a, a loss that wasn't properly acknowledged. I felt that uh, keeping keeping at least one or two of Alex's staff would have been really important, which I did try to do. Uh, in the end, it, it didn't quite work that way. But I, I still, I wanted to, I tried to add Ryan Giggs to it. I brought Phil Neville, people who had experience. But but I, I take the point, I think me getting into Manchester United, if I could fix it and go back, I'd probably say, well, I needed... Rennie Moore's Nielsen to stay or I needed Mickey Phelan to stay which I've admitted and said that you know if if, if I got that opportunity again that's what I would do right. but again when you've had I wouldn't say big success but when you've built 10 or 11 years of people who've worked around, around you with your own staff people who are loyal to you and people know how you work you know you want to be loyal back to them as well and that's probably part of me I'm I'm a pretty loyal person Tell us, um, if you can, what your first experience was like of that elite Manchester United dressing room because Preston were professional. Everton, you achieved amazing things, but you know this is a Manchester United team that had been on the back of this amazing period under Sir Alex. They were unbelievable. It's a bit like where we are today, and I, and I only use it as a sort of an example. It's as if when you're at the club, you can look over the top of everybody else that like we are from this building here today. 
their mentality to win, their their drive, their hunger was something which I hadn't seen. And I've got to say, I had a I had a really good group of players. In fact, I had a fantastic group of players at Everton. But I saw something, something more, something which was connected to being a winner, connected to maybe ego a little bit as well. We are going to show that, you know, what we are. So I saw a lot of that, which was, was good for me because I said it, it felt as if you were looking out the, the penthouse window and uh, you had a chance to see what how good it really looked. Did you not feel that you were at home there, given like what you've said about mm. your own hunger to win and yeah. your desire to improve? Did it not feel that you were amongst kindred spirits? I did. I thought, you know... Ideally, um, you know, there's lots of things. Uh, I had great support from Sir Alex, great support from David Gill in the background as well, who had both left the club. You know, I had met quite a lot of the, the former players privately uh, and sort of spoke to them and you know whether it about them coming back in or whether it had been involved in jobs or whatever. I think everybody knew that Sir Alex would, would go at some time and obviously somebody was going to have to take the job and actually... I felt as if people were really, really supportive. They really did. It was only uh, maybe a year or so later, and I'm, I'm a big part of the, the League Managers Association, and I'm on the board, and it was Howard Wilkinson who actually said, if if you actually look back at the, the, the football clubs which have had the dynasties, you know, like Don Ravey, even Sir Bobby, the people, or Brian Clough, the people who followed them, none of them, None of them have really been that successful. And I said, I said, you wish you'd told me that earlier, but I still don't feel as if it would have made me change any of my views. I saw getting the Manchester United job as a as a real, a real big thing that I wanted to try. And I saw the main reason I saw for doing it was winning trophies because I thought Everton's a great club and I would be knocking at the door for 10 or 11 years, struggling to win a trophy. Good, I want to go to Manchester United and and win trophies. During that period then, when did you sort of come to the realisation that it wasn't going to work or that there wasn't the buy-in? Uh, I probably never never thought at any time it wasn't going to work. And I'll tell you the reason why is because the owners had so much grief in their time there. They yeah. were always, they would stick by their manager. You know, they had done it, even Sir Alex in times had done it. And even the Glazers, you know, we had a really tough time. And, and so... I had real belief that, you know, no matter what would happen, they would they would stick by me and see it through. So, and Manchester United's style was not to, you know, change their managers regular, to do things correctly, give everybody time. So, I was surprised, but ultimately when you, when I look back, you know, I shouldn't be surprised because winning games at Manchester United and being up near the tops, the... The thing that matters. Could you share with us how it works in that situation? It sounds like you're a you're a guy who didn't necessarily see it coming. So, what is there a phone call? Is it a meeting? When is the when does that moment sort of arise? What what yeah. goes on? Yeah, well, I don't think I think uh, I believe that as, if you're a leader, I think giving bad news should be done with dignity. Yeah, whatever line of work, your business, MD's business, you know. There'll be things in life where we all have to give bad news, but I think there's a style you should do it and I think you should try and do it. And I think when you're the biggest sports or one of the biggest sports industries in the world, I think that, you know, you should you should have people who know how to do that. And I just felt in the end it, it didn't end very well. How did they do it then? Uh, well, it was done by a, by a 
come into the office early in the morning and and meet. But by the by the time it got round, like a lot of these situation is is uh, you know the media had got hold of it, which is the norm and and uh, it can happen. I think that's the world we're in. But hey, I have I hold no grudges whatsoever now. I'm well moved on, and as I said, I'm it's in the past, and I you know. I like going back to Old Trafford. I do. Yeah. I think a lot of the supporters don't don't probably see me as bad a light as maybe some do. I think they they probably understand exactly how difficult it was. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. And then comes the moment for the first time in your career where it's like, right, okay, I've lost a job. Now I need to reset. Can you talk us through the process that you went through, not just to get back into the game, but to sort of learn the lessons, yeah. mentally reset and be ready to go back into, you know, what it really is a sort of mm-hmm. lion's den, isn't it, of football management? Yeah, I think I had I had quite a few offers to go. And and part of when I, was, I mentioned I'd been in the LMA, you know, there was no, one of the reasons I was part of the board was because I felt that there's no British managers are getting opportunities to work in England. You know, all yep. if you look at our league, even our lower leagues now. So the chance to work in Spain or Italy or Germany, it, the the big leagues, there's, there was no British managers. Uh, Gary Neville had gone to Valencia, but if you look back over the years, uh, Howard Kendall, Sir Bobby, Terry Venables, no, there's others, but probably not many had been getting the jobs in in those countries. So I got offered a, a job in Spain, which I have to say was a brilliant job. In a, in a great experience. And when you talk about culture and learning and stuff like that, you know, it was a brilliant experience to understand Spanish players, yeah. how they react, you know, seeing them. I'd love you to explain to us the difference, how, you know, the real tangible well, differences the, between the, the two. The tangible difference is, is the, the players I had in the Bass region were fantastic. And they tell me the ones up in that region are more, I, I would use the word British uh, in, in a term. So we had, really really good players really their their attitudes was fantastic we didn't have a, a minute's problem with any of them what we did have a problem with is that the culture at the club I was at Real Sociedad was that we had to have 18 out of a squad of 25 had to be from the academy now if you actually think about saying well okay Manchester United have to have 18 boys out of the academy or Chelsea or Man City it would be a completely different world. Yeah, you're yeah. not you're not winning. It was as a manager getting in one who's saying, "Well, I'm coming out here to repair maybe damage what had been done." First British manager out in in one of the big leagues for a long time, and uh, I understood it when I went in, but I didn't really understood it till I got there. That why, and why did Sociedad have that policy? Was it just a it's their it's identity. their region, it's their identity, it's their culture. Right. They want the players to, to come through their own academy now. You could go to Atletico Bilbao, who are all pure Basque, so they right. they only will sign Basque players from from that region. So sometimes you look at it and you say, well, you know, it's an incredible how well Real Sociedad are doing just now, and and even Atletico Bilbao what they've got. But it became 
a period where if you had a good cycle of the young players, you'd be it's it's good. Comes you know, back to luck again. Comes back, it comes back to being in the right place <laughs> yeah. and a little bit of luck and good fortune. You need all that in to be to be a successful manager. But I've got to say the the culture, the living. I thought you know the the way the players trained, the way the players eat, uh, which I thought was different to what I see here. What I, I see here, I saw a different mentality to it. So there was things like what that. Was, I what back. was different with the mentality? Well, the mentality, I saw I saw players who were very professional, no no days off, maybe one day off a week, you know, probably play, right. recover, maybe have a day off and then back into it. Whereas, you know, the, there was a, a British cycle of it and I, it's changed greatly now where, you know, we might have had a, a Sunday off and a Wednesday off and, and I see that changing as well now, partly because of, you know, different nationalities which are coming into to our league here just now. But in Spain, I didn't see, there was there was very little time off, weren't looking for much time off. You know, it was interesting. They would train any time, the Spanish boys, except probably lunch, where lunch in Spain was incredibly important to them, sort of between two and four. You know, want to train before, want to train after, not a problem. So small things I, I, I saw were were interesting. The games I found really enjoyable. You know, I've got great memories of beating Barcelona 1-0 as a, as a, the manager, Real Sociedad. So I had a really good time and partly due to going out there was partly because it was something I wanted to take on and wanted to try and change the trend of, of overseas managers only coming to this country. So would you tell us about the power of a collective purpose then? Because when you're describing the Sociedad experience... I see some parallels with when you went into Everton and you coined that phrase about the people's club and you mm -hmm. sort of got people gathered and moving in the same direction. Mm -hmm. It sounds like there was a potential to do that at Sociedad as well. You you represent mm -hmm. in a region. Yeah. Would you tell us about what that gives you as a manager, how you can plug into that? Well, I think interesting the where the, the Basques in in that area were really keen on, because I was from Scotland, they were so keen on independence. You know, so they were mad team. They were more interested. Do you want independence? No, we, you know, we want independence. So there was a political issue to, to that region uh, was was really important. You know, they saw their own independence being really important, which you had to understand. But uh, I I felt that if I take you back to where I went to Everton, Everton, no, the people's club was just. I wish I'd thought it up for days and, and, and brought up a great saying it wasn't. It was a right. spur of the moment, driving in and thinking I saw the kids out in the street with, with strips on and Everton strips on and I thought, oh, they'll call this the People's Club. And at that time, it was really big. Sometimes folk think that football managers, we're all uh, you know professors in education and, and English literature and all these words and everything else. You got to remember, we most of us are, are uh, been football players all our life, not been not been at school as long as we should have been probably, and more interested in football than we were education. So, so we we are not trained PR experts or people who can conduct podcasts like this. We're uh, we're sort of football people who who want to do that. But the people's club for me was a, was a, a big moment because suddenly the, the supporters felt maybe there's somebody here going to try and, and move us. And you've got to remember that city has been predominantly dominated by Liverpool. Yeah. And, and the, the club there is desperately in need of trying to challenge more often. 
Yeah, but because it seemed to tap into something quite did. deep, didn't it? In the, <laughs> yeah, it did. And, the, and the, why you say that is, you know, I called it the People's Club and we got a poster sent in from a Liverpool supporter <laughs> of the village people. <laughs> you know, and it had a picture of Duncan Ferguson and me and Tommy Gravison and, and all the players with the, with the village people. And, you know, you could see that it had it, it sort of uh, stirred a few people at that time. Bit, it had yeah. a little bit. So, but uh, the humour in that city, as you can imagine by that, is is tremendous. I think it's so interesting having this type of a conversation with a current manager, which doesn't happen often enough because the job is... The job is so multifaceted, isn't it? And everyone sort of sees football through their own lens. You know, you've, you've just had the, the situation with Kurt Zuma where you made the decision to keep him in and some people thought that shouldn't have been the case and, and others within the club, I'm sure, thought it was the right decision because your job is to try and win games of football. I, I, do you think that we expect too much sometimes of managers? We expect them to be PR experts. We expect them to be great managers of people. We expect them to be able to win games of football and bring the fans on side and manage up to the chairman and look at a great 16-year-old and work out whether they're good enough or not. It, it yeah. seems almost the impossible job in that respect. Yeah, I think in, in many cases we've got some brilliant role models of managers. You know, you, we, we mentioned Sir Alex earlier on. We mentioned Sir Bobby Robson. You know, there's there's so many who, who would fit the bill, but... We're, we're not sometimes educated enough to deal with the situation which comes very quickly. For example, you know, we, the, the Kurt Sumer thing came on us very, very quickly, you know, maybe maybe given more time, there could have been a, a, a change of, of how we'd thought, but it came on very quickly. Some of the situations you get put in as a manager, like that situation, was one which I hope never comes up again. And all you can do is deal with it the best you possibly can. And mm. I think the most important thing then is, is uh, tell the truth and uh, be exactly trustworthy and truthworthy. Uh, trustworthy, yeah. Truthworthy, yeah. yeah. That's the, that's a good point, though, because I think that we say a lot on this podcast that in this modern world there's an awful lot of opinion and there's, there's not a lot of empathy. Do you find, as a football manager, people don't make enough effort to understand the challenges of the job? Well, I think we are all often sort of looked at because of the position we have to make the decisions and how do we how do we make them but quite often you know you talk about leadership then and we mentioned that you know you need good leadership you need good good support you know you need people good people around you who can help you and give you great advice uh, and I just go back to that only because I mean the people I had at Everton and I'd Sir Philip Carter and I told you about I had uh, Brian Gray who was my my chairman and sort of the owner at the time or at Preston, having having really good people who you can rely on and say, hey, I've got a problem. You know, being a football manager, we need people to speak to as well. We need people who we can trust, people yep. who can give us some sound advice. So even with all the experience we've got, and I have to say, you know, I, I used to phone Walter Smith and in the early days when I was a bit younger and I didn't quite have the connection with Sir Alex, I would phone Sir Alex for advice on should I take a job? You know, Walter Smith, sadly, I phoned Walter Smith maybe two, three weeks before he, he died and passed away. And he was fantastic. You know, he was talking about the team, you know, what we should do, you know, what it looked like. So even in the position we're in, no, we need we need a little bit of help. We're not, none of us are above that. Out of all those legendary figures that you've spoken to, what has been the best piece of advice they've given you that you still hold true today? I couldn't say the words what Walter said to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but 
you know, I, you know, even recent incidents, you know, I, the support I've had from some of those managers has been incredible. You know, the yeah. people who see it and understand the business and understand you're putting a situation about making decisions, you know, and there's a lot of opinions out there. You know, the the industry, the world, these these situations means there's a lot of opinions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think you have to try and do it with a bit of humility. You're trying to tell people how things are, you know, but... I'm not trying to tell them this is the way, but somewhere along the line, you have to be the person who makes the decision. How do you tune out all these opinions then? You know, like, it's that old saying, the opinions are like arseholes, aren't they? Everyone's got one. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't, I don't do social media, so I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think I'd like to be part of it, but partly frightened by it because I think that, you know, staying away from it, I think it's a safer bet. I've never known it, so why go into something which I don't really know? But I think sometimes you'd like to put your own opinions out and maybe say things which, uh, you know, I hope would be would be helpful or or uh, or be good. But uh, over the years, when you when you think back to in the early days when I was, when I go back to Press North End, what you used to get was a letters page on a Thursday in the newspaper in the, in the Preston Evening Post, and there would be there would be six or seven letters. Why is David Moyes picking this team? What's he doing this? And you would be raging. You would be raging and you no, know, you'd be saying, who's, who's doing this? It's terrible. And at that time, and, and it's a strange thing is criticisms of criticism affects everybody. It affects people's mental health. You know, you, and it, it becomes a situation where you look and say, I see many TV shows. I see many radio shows quite regularly talking about there's a man going to lose his job. What do you think? Phone in. Ask about what you think. Do you think this man should lose his job? But yet that seems okay for television broadcasters or for radio broadcasters to do yeah. as if that's part of the job. And actually when you think about it, it's a really damaging situation that, that these people put the managers in. So if there was one opinion that you'd want people to know that you have to share, what would that be? Opinion? Uh, because you don't use it, these platforms to to share it. What yeah, would you? Yeah, uh, I think that possibly you know, the Manchester United period it was will always be one. I see it as a big miss for me. I've missed. I missed a great chance. I don't see it as a negative. I see me having a chance to do it, and I, I wasn't ready or I didn't do something right. So, so that would be my opinion on on where I I got it. I got the chance and I didn't quite take it. So. Uh, I look back with regret and wishing that I'd done a better job. But what's nice is we can sit here and we can see all of the positives from all of these moments. And I think sometimes when it comes to management particularly, we say, oh, well, he's, he's lost a couple of jobs, so is he the right man for that job? Look at what you've learned from the experience at Manchester United or at Sociedad. Look how you can marry that up with coming through the ranks at Preston or building that amazing ethos at Everton. And now, in the West Ham dugout, it's not a coincidence that suddenly you've created one of the best teams of your management career and a real momentum at a club that, let's be honest, for a long yeah. time was was a you know a listing ship. Yeah. The the closest I could put it to is I feel as if there's a there's a chance that West Ham could be built into something really special. I think that because of of the the period at Everton, mm. 
I, I saw the journey at Everton and I don't think any of us nowadays would be ever see any managers doing 10 and 11 years. Well, I've done 11 and a half years. I don't think there's many people will do that, even Pep or Jurgen or maybe Daishi might, who knows. But, uh, but overall, I think to be on that journey is really hard. But I see West Ham having such potential. I see a chance to change how it's it's seen, perceived. Uh, I want to do it on the pitch first and foremost because if we get that, we'll get the support behind us. I see a different atmosphere in, in the West Ham Stadium than there's been before. I see younger supporters. I see a stadium now, yeah, which is not not everybody's favourite and might never be that. But I see it being somewhere where you can get young supporters coming to the games in the East End of London where there's not a great deal of money and they can get in relatively cheap to see Premier League players and see Premier League matches, which in nowadays is such a big thing. You know, as people travel all around the world to see Premier League matches. So West Ham do an awful lot of good good stuff in trying to make it affordable for, for young people. Great. We were lucky enough to get Phil Neville on this podcast series who spoke really glowingly about his time working with you at Everton. And he spoke very much around this idea of cultural architects, the leaders in the dressing room mm -hmm. that set the tone, set the standard. Yeah. He spoke about coming in and doing his extras before anyone else. Yeah. What are you looking for in that dressing room at West Ham now in terms of those, chari those characteristics mm -hmm. that can help you be successful? Well, Phil Neville was, was one of the catalysts to what we had. And uh, when we brought Phil from Manchester United, all the traits what I saw there, Phil had brought in. He he took responsibility like you couldn't believe. And uh, I tell a story about, and I, I still do when I'm out. You know, we one of the players was getting booed by the crowd, not performing well, uh, chanting "Get him off," whatever it might have been at the time. And I remember Phil Neville coming in at half time and going mad with the players and said, "Look, if they're booing him and and shouting against them." They're booing us all. And I thought he took responsibility all the time, kept taking the ball, kept wanting the ball and wouldn't wouldn't let it happen to one player. And he was one of the first I saw, you know, the, like the leadership groups, you know, within the players, you know, making sure at that time. Now, you can back a little bit more where there wasn't quite as much as there is maybe today in these situations, but Phil, Phil was great at making sure that checking the players, how are they, you know, what was going on. So... He showed me something else, Phil, coming from, and I think he took it from, from Manchester United. But at our club at the moment, Mark Nobles, Mark Nobles an incredible leader and he has been in sort of taking the club through. If you look at the periods that West Ham have been through and the things that have been going on and Mark sort of been the one who's stood fast, made sure that, that things go on and he still is today. Uh, he works really hard for the team, but he's great for me behind the scenes. And he's training up Declan Rice. He's, you know, he's letting other young players see how it is. He's doing quite a bit with his, watches the academy games and sees a lot of the 23s. And he's always sort of in their ears that, no, you're not getting the first team if you're, go if you're going to behave that way. You'll, you'll, if you don't do it right, then you'll not, not do it. So it's great to have people around you like that. So yeah. Mark Noble's one of them, I've got to say. Great. And, and how many of them do you think you need in a dressing room, like characters like that, for it to really start to take hold and become the standards? I think you need two, three. I think sometimes if you can have more than that, that can become a bit of an issue because you can have, you know, real sort of, I wouldn't say, you know, you can have real challenges every week with it. But 
I think that having a few in the dressing room is a big thing and is is modern football's going now where we're we're not communicating very well, you know, we're or we're communicating through our phones. Even though I, I talk about communication as a manager earlier on, I think the communication between players and on the pitch, you know, we talk about players used to shout, you know, you know, get stuck in a man on or, you know, the the shout I, I see it less. Partly language might be a bit to do with it. We've right. got much more overseas players, mm. partly partly maybe it's it's one of the the aspects of the game which you think of the improvements we we have in football. Know how they we see how well Pep coaches his players and how well they play in Jurgen and their intensity. But you know when it comes to communication on the field, I would say it's probably one of the things which has dropped off a little. Brilliant. Well, look, thank you very much for communicating with us. It's lovely to sit here and talk like this because it's clear that your your drive and your passion for management and football remains as strong as ever. We've got a few really fast, quick-fire questions for you. This will be the problem because the brain needs to start working luck, quickly, doesn't it? <laughs> so yeah. the first one is, what are the three non-negotiables that you and the people uh, around you should buy Three into? non-negotiables is discipline, commitment, probably attitude. Love it. If you could go back to one moment in your life, what would it be and why? I'd go back to when I was a young player at Celtic. I played with some of the best Scottish players, played for an unbelievable football club. And I think I'd love to go back. I, I, you know, I played some games, won a Premier League medal at Celtic when I was young. But I think if I could, had a chance to do it again and say, oh boy, what a chance. And I always wanted to become a full Scottish international, which I wasn't, so. And finally, for all those people that have listened to this conversation, I'm sure there'll be uh, many Everton, Man United, West Ham, Celtic, Preston fans among them. As you sit here now with all your experiences and we've relived a lot of them over the last hour or so, what would you say now is your one golden rule to living a high-performance life? My energy and my love of football. I think if you don't love football, then I think you find it very hard to to have a longevity in it. I think you see so many good... Man- older managers who are, who are still in the game now, but it's the love of the game. And I think the minute you lose the energy, you know, I love watching live football. I like going out to see it. I like the amount of games I've been to and I've seen, well, I've seen a player tonight or, you know, it's changed a little bit because we have so much on television. But it was always a way that I wanted to go and see live football because I felt that was the best way to to learn. Maybe a new corner kick routine, maybe a new tactic. And I still, in my own way, want to, want to hope that that's still the way you can continue to learn. Brilliant. Love that. Thank you very much. Damien. Jake. David is a hugely successful football manager and he's someone who spends his life giving feedback. I think what was really interesting in that conversation is he's clearly learned from taking feedback as well. Yeah, that message that he said about learning to be a little bit more optimistic, maybe be happier, to smile more, might sound trite on the surface, but actually, you know, a leader uh, is somebody that needs to project a certain image, a certain level of confidence. And I think we've all seen managers looking beleaguered or stressed uh, on the touchline. And the impact that has on their team and the wider community, such as the supporters, is significant. So I thought that was really honest and open of him to share that. And when are we going to change this weird conversation around football management? Because I know there'll be people listening to this now that go, ah, David Moyes, 
high performance, but he lost his job at Man United and he struggled a bit at Real Sociedad. Like, when are we going to realise that those are the very things that take you towards high performance? Because those are the failures, those are the struggles. Therefore, those are the periods of learning. Like, he's a better high performer for those difficult times. I was involved uh, many years ago with the England rugby league team when we went out to Australia in the World Cup and and performed pretty mediocrely. But I remember speaking to the coaches afterwards and knowing that every one of those coaches involved in that was richer and better for that experience. And whilst it's horrible in the moment, like he admitted his Manchester United experience was, it can only be better because he's done the reflection, he's acquired the hard yards of... Uh, experience that meant that no doubt he is a more rounded, better leader today than he was 10 years ago. But that's why he's taken West Ham as far as he has in Europe. That's why they're pushing to be in Europe again next season. And that's why he's able to come on this podcast and share really eloquently with us the learnings and the lessons. And, you know, even when we spoke there about um, the Kurt Zuma situation, and if you watch this on YouTube, you'll see, you know, he looks like... He doesn't like talking about it because I think he's probably embarrassed about it. And I think that even that is a learning experience. If something happens, as he said, at West Ham in the future and they have to make an instant decision, it will be a different instant decision from the one that they took this time around, which they will be the first to acknowledge wasn't right. Yeah. I think the beauty of this podcast, Jake, is that we get beyond the cartoon image of just somebody being good or bad or fantastic or rubbish. And you see the human side of it. You see the struggles, you see the difficulties, you see the ambiguity that so many of us are having to deal with. And I think that's a really good example of it, that it's easy just to give a headline response to that situation without understanding the human element that sits behind it. Thanks a lot, mate. Thank you, mate. Loved it. Well, once again, it's that time of high performance where we welcome a listener to join us. Normally, I would introduce them, but I think that should be your honour, Damien, because you and our guest today, you know each other, right? Yeah, we do. So uh, we've got daughters in the same class at school, and uh, we were talking in the playground recently where um, Louisa told me about this brilliant, phenomenal charity that she's involved in that makes a real difference. So, Louisa, thank you for coming on. Would you tell us a little bit more around the, uh, the charity? I would, yeah. Thank you for having me, though. Um, so I am a personal stylist whereby I clear out ladies' wardrobes, recreate outfits for them, personal shopping, all that kind of thing. And I donate all the stuff after each session to a local uh, community centre, which is also uh, a food bank, and they do a lot of work for the community. And the fabulous woman there, uh, she's called Kirsty Taylor at the uh, Biddeford Centre, asked, do I ever get prom dresses and anything like that? And I do get prom dresses, shoes, handbags. We spoke about why, and they have a lot of families within the area whose teenagers say proms aren't for them, they're not into it, they're too cool for it, it's not their thing, when actually the the true matter is they can't afford it because, as we all know, prom outfits, especially the, the extra pressure for girls to get their hair and the makeup, can spiral into the hundreds. Um, and there's a lot of comparison with each other, who's wearing what, that kind of thing. So our initiative is called Dress OS, and we are creating a charity whereby they don't need to worry about that. The cost of living, obviously, is real and it's happening. And if you can't afford to feed your family, you're certainly not going to spend um you know, £150 on a dress. So the idea is that they can come to us, choose the dress, choose the suit for the boys, the shoes. We're going to try and get some hairdressers, makeup artists on board so they feel like 
it's a real um, event for them and it's not that they're getting something donated to them. So just for them to get the experience that other teenagers and young adults would get that they shouldn't have to miss out on. I think that is brilliant. I really love what you're doing, Louisa, because I think, you know, all of us on this conversation are parents and we've... We can let ourselves down sometimes and get over it, but feeling like you're letting your children down is yeah. sort of the most painful thing ever. Um, and I know you listen to the podcast. What kind of inspiration has High Performance given you when it comes to this venture? I mean, I suppose the one that we're, we're most aligned with is the Mary Portas episode. So, you know, with the sad passing of her family when she was a teenager, her, her mother at 16 and her father at 18, she knows the pressure that is on teenagers and the pressure that they have now is even more so with social media, um, all that kind of thing that, that wasn't around them. But the fact that Mary Portas talked about uh, collaboration and generosity and kindness. So the, the community centre that I'm working with there are brilliant and they do so much hard work, hard work for the entire community. And, you know, my my fashion styling career is, is doing well, but sometimes it can seem a bit vacuous and people say what is actually a personal stylist what do they do so it's about working together as a team and um i think the other side of things which mary porter speaks about brilliantly as well is the sustainability side of things so teenagers should not feel embarrassed that they're wearing something that's pre-loved because it's the most important way that we can keep the fashion world turning it's and you know people are going to buy new things and they're going to want new things and that's human nature but it's about being mindful with how you spend your money and what you spend your money on and turning away from fast fashion but thinking about things so do I need it and do I love it and that's fine that's one separate thing but the fact that if you're going to spend 150 pound or you know in some cases 300 or more and you're going to wear it once let's pass that on and you know these dresses are absolutely perfect there's nothing wrong with them so why spend money on something when we can there's no better way to keep this you know the eco styling of it all going so that's another aspect that we want the teenagers to be actually really proud of yes they may not be able to necessarily afford it but they don't have shame in the fact that they've got um, a donated dress or a dress that they may borrow from us and pass on to somebody else because that's the way forward for these teens and they're so much more climate aware now. And what does it do for them as people as well, Louisa, this, uh, this ability for these kids from more difficult backgrounds to be able to go to a prom? Well, you know, especially the last two years with, with COVID, teenagers have been hit so hard. And what we find is, especially at the, the food bank, the food hub, is unfortunately we have families with very young kids and that's devastating and also devastating the fact that they don't know any different. So younger kids, primary school kids, think that's the norm, whereas the teenagers don't. They have that extra shame of it. And we want to take that away from them and give them the opportunity that all the other kids have who may be in the same school but come from a different locality, um, but giving them that chance and giving them that opportunity to feel confident, to feel proud, and to really celebrate the fact that they've spent however many years at school working really hard. And it's a monumental event for teenagers and it's only getting bigger. And why should they miss out because of the unfortunate position that they're in? It's brilliant. Listen, Louisa, thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for doing what you're doing. And I, I wish you all the luck in the world with it. Thank you very much, Jake. So where can people find out more about the charity then, Louisa? They can find my details on Instagram, which is Louisa, L-U-I-S-A-G, stylist. We have a Facebook page called Dress OS and we also have a website, dressos.co.uk, 
we built it ourselves. We're a very small team of a few people, so please excuse. We're not very IT savvy, so it's all um, quite basic. But you can get in touch with us that way or over email, hello at dressos.co.uk. Brilliant. Thank you very much. You know what I really hope is that you get in touch with us. I love it when we release an episode like this and we get messages from you. So please hop onto my Instagram right now. You'll find me at Jake Humphrey. Damien is at Liquid Thinker. You can find the podcast as well at High Performance. But please just ping us a note. Tell us what you made of it, what you thought, what you liked, what you didn't like. Don't forget, we're not telling you what to think. We're just putting these people in front of you and we're asking you to suspend your opinion, to open your minds and maybe have your mind changed. So let me know what you made of that conversation with David Moyes. Um, And I just want to point you towards something because high performance for us has always been about impact, impacting as many lives as possible. And it's lovely that so many people are listening and sharing and talking about this podcast, but the younger we can get hold of people and help them with their mindset then the more of an impact we can have on their lives. Um, so I'd love you to check out our education assets. All you need to do is go to thehighperformancepodcast.com, thehighperformancepodcast.com. Um, if you click on the tab on the top right, you'll see loads of stuff there, whether it's our shop or our live ticket events and all these bits and pieces. But I want you to click on education and just have a look at the kind of stuff that is on offer there for you. And if you want it, you can use it. It's there for you. It's totally free, just like this podcast. We just want to have an impact. We just want to change minds. We just want to change lives. Don't forget, you can also watch all our interviews on YouTube. But for now, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I'm hugely appreciative. I know Professor Damien Hughes feels exactly the same. The whole team of Gemma and Will and Hannah and Eve and Finn from Rethink Audio, everybody that works on this podcast loves it when you come and listen. Remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. Be your own biggest cheerleader and make world-class basics your calling card. We'll see you next week.